and the punishment was too severe? What's wrong with you people? Evangelical churches today are increasingly dominated by the spirit of this age rather than by the spirit of Christ. But yet, tragically, the popular evangelical authors and conference speakers today who are teaching that justification is by faith alone, but entering heaven is not by faith alone, there are other conditions to be met. A what? Back to the Reformation. It has been more than 500 years since the Reformation. The 21st century church has departed from the authority of scripture and the gospel. We welcome you to listen in as we go back to the Reformation. The views of this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of the churches the host attend. Welcome to the Back to the Reformation podcast. My name is Matt Rosenblum, and I'm here with my co-host, Onyxiadian. And we are here to sound the clarion call to tell the Bonner Church to get back to its roots in the Reformation, to recover the gospel, and to submit to the authority of Scripture. All right, man. Well, here we are. It's our first episode. You ready to go back to the Reformation, man? I'm ready to go back to the Reformation. All right, man. <laughs> so let's go. So we have a guest today. Who's our first guest? Our um, esteemed guest today is Dr. R. Scott Clark, a professor of church history and historical theology, Westminster, California, Escondido. Dr. Clark holds a BA at University of Nebraska, an MDiv at Westminster Seminary, California, and a Doctor of Philosophy at Oxford University. Welcome, Dr. Clark, to our podcast. Hi, guys. It's good to be with you. Oh, thank you for coming. We appreciate it, man. We uh, sure admire your work, and we uh, read the Heidel blog all the time, and I listen to the Heidelcast, and, you know, we could uh, thank you enough for coming. I'm happy to be here. I'm excited that uh, you guys are enthusiastic about the Reformation. Amen. Yes, we sure are. <laughs> Anyway, I, let's get right to it. You know, there's so much to cover. Um, first topic I want to cover is, you know, we're on the Back to the Reformation podcast. And Scott Clark, you know, a lot of people think, oh, you guys are just a bunch of stuffy old Calvinists and Reform guys. So why is the Reformation still important for the church today? Well, we might be stuffy old Calvinists, but that's immaterial. <laughs> uh, the, right. the Reformation is important whether we are, are stuffy or not. Yeah. Uh, if I tell you it's 87 degrees outside, um, and I might be a bad guy, right? Or I, <laughs> no, I, I may not be, but uh, whether I'm a bad guy or a stuffy old guy, it doesn't matter. If it, right. if it uh, what matters is whether it's 87 degrees outside. <laughs> right. So, um, so. Uh, uh, so the Reformation is always important, and chiefly because the Reformation rediscovered some really, really important truths. And um, we use some slogans, some shorthand to describe those truths. And these are truths that are, uh, by and large, unknown to most American evangelicals. There was a famous, and in that sense, great liberal theologian, uh, whose theology I find f fairly bizarre, but whose historical observations uh, I, I've benefited from, who uh, said that uh, America never had a Reformation. And there's a lot of truth to that, um, in as much as uh, what has dominated American uh, evangelical religion since really the turn of the 19th century, and in some ways for much of the 18th century, is a spirit that is hard to reconcile with the Reformation. And, mm -hmm. and that's particularly true since the turn of the 19th century, because the first great uh, episode in, the, uh, in um, 
1800, right, beginning of the 19th century, was an outbreak of Pentecostalism at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And that sort of inaugurated the Second Great Awakening, which is the matrix, the womb out of which uh, all modern evangelical theology, piety, and practice comes. The, so Americans are, to, a, to the degree that we are the children of the, particularly the Second Great Awakening, but even the children or the grandchildren or great-grandchildren of the First Great Awakening, uh, we really aren't very deeply connected to the Reformation. And, uh, and so we, we labor to see the or the importance of it, and, and uh, we're a little confused about the importance of the past, the importance of history, because Americans, of course, uh, as a people, tend to be ahistorical. In some ways, we came to the new world to get away from the past. Well, the Reformation is all about the past, in a sense. It's about remembering what happened in the 16th century and why. And uh, Americans, particularly American evangelicals, to the degree that they're not interested in the past, then sort of uh, have to rediscover it all the time or uh, you know, do uh, theology from scratch as if no one's ever done it before right. and make all the mistakes that have always been made in the history of the church and so forth. And, and so what we rediscovered in the Reformation were, were basic biblical truths, uh, the, the first of which, in a sense, is sola scriptura, that the Bible is the final, unique um, authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. It's not to say that there are no other secondary or subsidiary authorities. There certainly are, and, and among those would be creeds and confessions. And we'll come back to that, I guess, in a bit. Uh, but but uh, at the end of the day, our faith, our Christian life, is uh, determined by Holy Scripture. Well, American evangelicals, I think, used to know Scripture better than they do now. Hmm. And so, in a sense, uh, there's a great need to reconnect with Scripture, learn to read it as it intends to be read, and, and not as a sort of Gnostic uh, collection of Gnostic secrets to be decoded by people so we can figure out, you know, uh, you know, which parts of the revelation refer to black helicopters and, and, and so forth. Oh uh, there, there's another way of reading scripture. So, and we need to rediscover the normativity of scripture and the perspicuity of scripture, that it's essentially clear, it's sufficiently clear for what we need to know for salvation uh, and for the Christian life. And the other great truths, of course, that we need to rediscover are that salvation is by grace alone. And uh, the driving animus of the second great awakening was that salvation is uh, by our cooperation and uh, our good works, and that's deeply ingrained in American evangelicalism. And um, I was, and, uh, and then uh, I'm not not to cut you off, Doctor Clark, but I, I just recalled um, certain episodes I would listen to on the White Horse Inn with uh, Michael Horton and how they would interview um, uh, certain um, groups, Christian groups, and who could not even articulate the gospel. And that was well, just a yeah. sad state of affairs. Time and time and again, uh, if you talk to people in uh, American evangelical churches and ask them, if you were to die tonight, you know, the old evangelism explosion question, and find yourself standing face to face with God, why should he let you into his heaven? If you ask that question, uh, the answer you get will not typically be a very good answer. It certainly won't be a Protestant answer. It won't be an answer that Paul would recognize in Galatians, or Ephesians, or Colossians. Uh, but it is an answer, however, that the Pharisees would understand. It, it is an answer um, that Pelagius would understand. It is an answer that the medieval church would understand, and an answer that the Remonstrants would understand in the uh, 17th century. So uh, we've lost our sense that salvation is by the free favor of God, and in, and in that sense, unconditional. 
Uh, and then uh, we, we've lost our grasp of, of the doctrine of salvation through faith alone. So, right, by grace alone, through faith alone. And, and that is that faith, resting, receiving, trusting in Jesus and in his finished work is the sole instrument by which we receive all that Christ has done for his people. And Amen. it rests. And again, if you ask most American evangelicals, what is faith? Uh, it, it doesn't really uh, get to resting. Uh, it'll be described in a lot of different ways. Mostly performance. But oftentimes in terms of performance. Uh, that's right. And, and as a consequence, then people tend to think in America of Christianity chiefly in legal terms rather than in terms of grace and faith. Um, and they tend to read the Bible uh, as a kind of mystery novel to be decoded by experts rather than uh, a, a multifaceted story which finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. So, uh, so there is, uh, to the degree that people are unaware of these basic truths and, uh, and, and these uh, you know, uh, great truths that were rediscovered in the Reformation, to the degree that they don't have those or have lost track of those things, the Reformation is always relevant. And um, you know, when I get to speak in, in uh, settings where the Reformation is not well known, and, and I've had lots of opportunities like that, mm -hmm. and I lay out these basic truths, uh, people are continually amazed. So, um, you know, as earlier I, I mentioned that uh, saying by Paul Tillich that America never had a Reformation, and that's partly true, uh, and historically there's a lot of truth in that, but it's, it, it, in a sense it happens on a congregation by congregation basis. And, uh, and I am seeing that. Uh, I'm thinking of a congregation in Bakersfield that uh, I've worked with for a number of years uh, who just held uh, their um, holding evening services now, meeting every week, and the pastors are preaching uh, the Word of God as confessed in the Heidelberg Catechism. Right. right? And, and uh, you know, that's happening in Bakersfield in a place where there are not, you know, there's not very many Reformed witnesses. And uh, I know of congregations in other parts of the uh, North America and across the globe where people are becoming excited about, uh, about the Reformation, about the sola, sola scriptura, sola gratia, and sola fide. That's wonderful. All right, so to tie it in here, why are creeds and confessions so important? I mean, you know, we just have our Bible, you know, why isn't the Bible enough? Often, you know, we go to churches where you go on the website and there's just a doctrinal statement, there's no creeds or confessions. The churches that Onik and I grew up with, you know, have only had doctrinal statements. So, Dr. Clark, again, why are creeds and confessions so important today, and why should our churches hold them? Well, creeds are con and confessions are important because, uh, like belly buttons, everyone has one. And, uh, <laughs> you either know that you have one, or you don't. And if you don't know that you have a belly button, that would be a little strange. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure how to fix that. Um, but uh, every, So if I go into a church that says, you know, no creed but Christ, and I, and I go in there and I say, well, listen, I disagree with no creed but Christ. I think that's a mistake. Um, and I'd like to challenge that. They'd say, oh, no, we are convinced no creed but Christ. Well, guess what? They have a creed. It's just a really short and a really inadequate creed. Mm -hmm. Their creed is no creed but Christ. Um, so everybody's got one. And uh, you just have to realize that you have one. And, and then you have to ask, well, is it a good one? Uh, it, it doesn't have any antiquity, for example. Uh, do you know? Does anyone else hold this creed? Uh, what are its inherent virtues? Right? Uh, does it explain the Christian faith well? 
does it uh, give a good account of what Scripture says? And, and so uh, if you begin asking those questions, then the, the kinds of de facto creeds that exist in a lot of churches uh, begin to um, pale, really. And yeah. so then I say, well, guess what? Uh, there are great creeds. And so let's distinguish for a moment between creeds and confessions. There are ecumenical creeds that have been held by all Christians in all times and in all places. And so you don't have to reinvent the wheel. The first one of those would be the Apostles' Creed, which has roots in the ancient church. Uh, they called it the rule of faith in the middle of the second century. And you can see it in Irenaeus. He, he um, actually gives an account of the rule of faith uh, in the 170s. And you can find the rule of faith in Tertullian in the early third century. And, and so the substance of what becomes the Apostles' Creed, which of course wasn't actually written by the apostles, but for a long time the church uh, seems to have thought that perhaps, uh, at least the legend was uh, for a time, that each apostle had written one article of the creed and there are 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. Well, we know that's not true, and, and uh, we've known that for a very long time. Uh, but but uh, we call it the Apostles' Creed out of tradition and to recognize the antiquity of the creed and the fact that it is a basic, clear, true summary of the apostolic faith. And uh, I know when I was a young evangelical and, and I first heard people confessing the Apostles' Creed, I thought, well, this is something that Roman Catholics do. You know, that somehow I picked up that, that notion. I, I don't know where, I don't know how, but that's what I had been given to think. Well, of course, that's not true. Right. Uh, the Protestant churches all confessed the Apostles' Creed, and they wrote commentaries on the Apostles' Creed and uh, used it as a, as a, a guide. Uh, all the great Protestant theologians used the Apostles' Creed uh, in their uh, confessions and in their catechetical instruction. That is, uh, in a sense, that's what we used to call Sunday school, catechism, sort of questions and answers. Uh, Sunday school is a 19th right. century movement. So, um, uh, you know, we, we have these great ecumenical creeds. Ecumenical simply means universal. Uh, Catholic is another way of saying universal. It has nothing to do with Romanism. Roman Catholicism, uh, if you're worried about that, is uh, an oxymoron. It's a contradiction in terms. You're either a Catholic or you're a Romanist. But you, to say Roman Catholic is like saying I'm a fat, skinny person or something. You know, you're one or the other. <laughs> right. um, so big bone, um, big bone, <laughs> big bone. Yes, I no offense. Uh, so oh, um, there you go. We, there lots of great uh, creeds in the ancient church. There's the Nicene Creed, of course, uh, drafted at this. Uh, Council of Nicaea in 325, and then uh, added a little bit um, at Constantinople in 381. So it's the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, but it's a lot easier just to say the Nicene Creed. Um, and then there's the, uh, the uh, definition of Chalcedon uh, from the uh, 5th century, and uh, a little later in the 5th century, probably the Athanasian Creed. Uh, again, not actually written by Athanasius, but a, a great summary of um, what the Church had come to understand uh, the, the, the faith to teach. And so we have creeds that deal with the whole of the faith in the very brief terms, and we have creeds that focus on the two natures of Christ and the Trinity. And uh, so we've got those, uh, and those are called the ecumenical creeds. Those are widely held. Um, it's true the Eastern Church doesn't necessarily hold uh, all of those creeds, uh, but uh, it does hold, for example, the Nicene and, and, uh, and the Apostles' Creed, I think. Um, so they, there's ecumenicity to them. And then there are, of course, the Protestant confessions. And I'm a Reformed pastor and teacher, and so I hold the Reformed confessions. And I have uh, stood before the, the Lord and the Church and uh, other folks, and I've signed 
my name underneath the Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Canons of Dort. We'd call those the three forms of unity. Heidelberg Catechism was published in 1563 in Germany, and uh, the Belgic Confession was published in the Netherlands in 1561, and the Canons of Dort, of course, from the great famous Synod of Dort, 1618-1619, to respond to the Ar Arminians or the Remonstrants. And, uh, and then also as a uh, professor here, I uh, subscribed the Westminster Standards, the Westminster Confession, and the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and the Westminster Larger Catechism from right. uh, the 1640s. And those are the in a, probably the most famous of the Reformed Confessions, and sometimes I call them the six forms of unity, because there's a great deal of, of uh, agreement, substantial agreement uh, between them. Uh, so the Belgic, the Heidelberg, the Canons, and the Westminster Standards. But there's a lot of other great Reformed Confessions, the French Confession from 1559, um, the uh, Second Helvetic Confession, uh, first drafted in the early 1560s, I think 1561, published in 1566, in Zurich by uh, Heinrich Bullinger, and uh, there are a number of other great uh, Protestant confessions, Reformed confessions as well. And these things are enormously valuable because they are the formal official statement from the church of, of what the church understands the Word of God to teach on essential matters. Uh, scripture, God, man, Christ, salvation, church, and sacraments. Uh, those topics on which all Christians need to know uh, what the scriptures say. So, Dr. Clark, uh, you know, we often hear um, the modern church, you know, neglect these creeds and confessions and say, you know, uh, well, you know, the Heidelberg Catechism, what are you, Catholic? You know, I often get that when they look at me with these eyes like, wow. You know, recently I've been teaching my kids the Heidelberg Catechism, and it's just been a glorious thing. Um, and, you know, you find that your kids are really interested in it, actually. Um, there's a lot of great questions, and it's a great learning tool. And I think um, it's vital how it's vital for the church, how much more vital it is for congregations. Um, well, that's right. Uh, so to address the first uh, question, uh, is, is uh, the use of a catechism a, a Roman or Roman Catholic practice? And, and the answer is absolutely not. Uh, the church has always practiced some kind of catechesis. Again, Catechesis is just the Greek word for instruction, and uh, the root of it is found in the New Testament. So this is an ancient practice uh, where the teacher asks questions and the student gives answers, and the catechism is simply a collection of questions and answers. And so there are Reformed catechisms, Lutheran catechisms, uh, the Roman Catholics have a catechism, the Romanists, uh, and so um, uh, there's an Anglican catechism. Uh, so all, uh, it's used in, a, in lots of different traditions, and again, the, the uh, 19th century American uh, revivalists and evangelicals coming out of the Second Great Awakening, uh, in a sense, ditched all of that. And uh, for a variety of reasons, some of it uh, out of ignorance, uh, some of the evangelicals came from state churches and they identified catechisms with dead orthodoxy because, of course, they came out of uh, groups where they were concerned that people uh, you know, didn't really have a vital heartfelt relationship with Jesus. And so they associated catechesis and catechism with that. Uh, but um, of course, um, there's been lots of vital, warm, pious, heartfelt religion uh, through the use of catechisms. And, uh, and, and uh, in our churches where I serve in the United Reformed Churches in North America, we use the Heidelberg Catechism, which is a marvelous 
uh, catechism that's been used by millions of Reformed Christians all over the globe. Uh, I have friends in Nigeria that use the Heidelberg Catechism. I have friends in mm. uh, South Korea that use the Heidelberg Catechism. And it's been translated into many, many languages. It's, I have a friend who uh, translated the Heidelberg Catechism into modern Hebrew, and it's being used in Tel Aviv. Wow. And, and uh, so uh, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that it's been loved and used by millions of, of Christians. And um, in case the listener is unfamiliar with the Heidelberg Catechism, the most famous question and answer is a question one, which asks, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And the answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and in death, am not my own, but belong to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and redeemed me from all the power of the devil, and so preserves me that without the will of my Father in heaven, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, that all things must work together for my salvation. Wherefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Well, that just comes right out of Scripture. Yes. Every phrase is a biblical mm -hmm. phrase, and it's very carefully and very skillfully uh, strung together or, or sewed together, maybe yeah. a better metaphor. And, uh, and, and this is how we teach the faith to new converts, and this is how we teach the faith to uh, our children. Right? And, we, and our children grow up uh, confessing this. So I taught my children this catechism so that uh, they were able to recite not all of it, but much of it from memory uh, by the time they were 12 years old. And uh, I've, I've sat with old saints who could uh, recite this catechism in German and in English, right? and which is the, the original language was German and it was done in uh, in Latin and then Dutch, and as I say, lots of different languages. Well, that's a marvelous question and answer, and, and it's thoroughly Protestant and evangelical in the best sense of the word. That is, it's a gospel catechism. And someone I know on this podcast has actually written a book on it. <laughs> it wasn't me. Dr. Uh, Dr. Well, Clark, I, why, why don't you give that title to the listening audience? Well, that's a good question. Uh, I am in the process of, of writing a commentary on the Heidelberg Catechism. Uh, and, uh, you wrote a book, though, on confession. What is that book called? And, and I did a book on one of the authors of the Heidelberg, or one of the editors of the Heidelberg. Um, so that, uh, uh, and, and that uh, title is Casper uh, Olivion and the Substance of the Covenant. Mm -hmm. And you right? also wrote a book started with Recovering. Oh well, yes, there, yeah, there's that. <laughs> oh, that. <one. laughs> and, um, uh, yeah, the, so uh, in 2007, 2008, somewhere in there, I published a, a volume called "Recovering the Reformed Confession," which is a, an argument uh, which was aimed really mostly at the Reformed churches to say, "Listen, uh, we don't have to reinvent the wheel, and uh, we've lost track of what we confess." We've lost track of, in certain ways of our theology and our piety, our way of worshiping and, and uh, addressing our God and the practice, the way we live out the faith. Uh, we've, we've lost track of that and because we lost track of our confessions. We've lost track of the Westminster Standards and the Belgic and the Heidelberg and the Canons, and we need to recover this. And we need to, uh, in, the, in a sense, in, the, in a broader sense, recover the Reformed Confession. That is the way the, faith, the, the Reformed faith was understood in the classical period in the 16th and 17th centuries. And uh, we need to let them instruct us uh, again, because 
my argument was we become unduly influenced by two uh, forces. One, uh, I call the quest for illegitimate religious certainty, and, and uh, we could call that fundamentalism. I, I called it uh, the quest for illegitimate religious certainty or quirk because I, I didn't want to get stuck in the definition of fundamentalism, although there, there's a little bit of that uh, discussion there, right. and where people try to identify their, the human intellect with God's intellect, or they set up tests to determine orthodoxy that don't have anything to do with what the Reformed churches confess the Word of God to teach. And uh, sometimes it's the King James only, sometimes uh, it's the age of the earth, or uh, sometimes it's theonomy or, or federal vision or whatever it is. Uh, people are forever inventing uh, standards by which to determine who is orthodox and who isn't uh, without reference to the Word of God as confessed by the churches. And the other thing that I uh, addressed was the quest for illegitimate uh, religious experience, which we could also call revivalism, this desire to have an unmediated experience of the risen Christ, rather than relying on the divinely instituted uh, means by which God communicates to us. And, and again, chiefly, it's the Word of God. But he also communicates his promises to us in baptism. You know, it's not magic, but it is a divinely instituted covenant sign and seal. We call it a sacrament. Again, it's, sacrament doesn't mean magic. It simply means uh, a, a divine promise or a divine seal, uh, um, a seal of divine promise. So, and a sign of, uh, of what uh, Christ has done for his people. And uh, he communicates himself to us through his word and uh, through the sacraments, and uh, he uses prayer to accomplish his purposes. So I wanted to uh, draw us away from this desire to have a mountaintop experience or, you know, some sort of, um, you know, overwhelming uh, excitement and experience and, and to get us back to thinking about, uh, you know, what uh, Mike Horton has very aptly called, you know, the ordinary, the ordinary Christian life and the uh, ordinary means of grace. And Great book, a, a by two, the way. Great book. Yeah. Well, it is. Uh, and, and it has a twofold sense. Uh, first, ordinary means ordained by God. And secondly, it means that which we usually use, that which is normal, as opposed to you know, we, we gathered together, and the Lord spoke a word directly to me, and, and I got slain in the Spirit, I rolled on the floor, and, and so forth, which is, you know, again, that's the pattern that really comes out of the Second Great Awakening, uh, out of the Cane Ridge Revival, and, and then out of the Finneyite Revivals, you know, I came forward, I walked the sawdust trail, I had this enormous uh, sort of shattering conversion experience at the anxious bench. Well, no, uh, all of that's foreign to us. Um, we catechize our children. We meet every week for, for you know, public worship services. Uh, the minister conducts the service decently and in order. And uh, you know, he preaches the gospel. He administers the sacraments. Uh, you know, we, we gather to pray for one another. Uh, um, you know, it's not spectacular. Nobody's falling on the floor. But, but uh, oh, Come God on, man. I want to see people fall on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> but God hasn't really ordained the stuff that we're looking for. Right. Um, he hasn't ordained, you know, singing songs like uh, Sloppy Wet Kiss or Shine Jesus Shine or <laughs> or In the Garden. I mean, if we, not to pick on the new ones. Uh, so, Dr. Clark, in a, I guess a similar line of questions uh, would be, uh, what is the difference between uh, Biblicism and Confessionalism? 
Uh, biblicism does not mean being biblical. I've had that conversation in, in the last year or so with people who, when I've criticized biblicism, they say, well, I'm a biblicist. I, I want to be faithful to scripture. Uh, no, there's a difference between uh, being biblical, which we very much want to be, right? And so what we say to people is, listen, this is what we think the scriptures teach. Here it is in the Heidelberg. Here it is in the Belgic or the Canons or the Westminster Standards. And if you can find a problem with that, will you show us and we'll change it, right? So I want people to understand we are committed to being biblical. We're committed to being faithful to the scriptures. Uh, but we think uh, what is in the confessions is faithful to the scriptures. So biblicism says... I am going to read the Bible as if no one's ever done it before. And uh, I, there are some famous preachers who've said this is their method. Uh, this is the way they're going to read the scriptures. This is the way they're going to interpret the scriptures and, and preach the scriptures as if no one's ever done it before. Well, I, I know what they mean. They, 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 you know, they're not relying on other people's work and, and it's fresh and it's new. Uh, but that's also led to a lot of problems. One of those had grave problems with his doctrine of Christ and, and had trouble understanding that God the Son uh, uh, has always been God the Son, that he is the eternally begotten Son of God. And, and that, had he known the Nicene Creed and meditated on the Nicene Creed and really uh, uh, thought about it deeply and let it inform his understanding of the faith, he wouldn't have had those Christological problems. And then that same preacher, uh, some years later, when he was confronted with antinomianism, uh, reacted by essentially repeating some of the errors, at least initially, of Richard Baxter by saying that, well, God accepts you if you meet certain conditions. Uh, well, no, that's not true. God accepts you uh, yeah, uh, for the sake of Christ, and we seek to be obedient to him because we've been redeemed by grace alone, through faith alone. We're, we don't obey in order to be accepted. We have that again, same problem, he, excuse me, but we have that same problem today, you know. Well, we certainly do. I mean, this this thing is, you know, uh, widespread, it seems to me. And, and, and you know, in fairness, there, I think there's probably some antinomianism out there, too. That mm -hmm. is, people denying that there are any uh, conditions in the Christian life, any consequent conditions. Right. Um, and again, we want to say, no, you've been saved in order to obey the moral law of God as summarized in the Ten Commandments. And if you deny that, then you are an antinomian. You're denying the abiding validity of the law of God. And uh, all of the Protestants, all the confessional Protestants, going back to Martin Luther in the 1520s, have rejected antinomianism as contrary to the word of God. In fact, it was Martin Luther who invented the term antinomianism to deal with this kind of problem. So, um, you know, so in this particular case that I'm thinking of, had he really embodied, you know, in a sense, uh, really meditated on and internalized, I guess is a good way to put it, the ecumenical creeds, he could have avoided a problem. And had he internalized the Heidelberg Catechism, he would never have said that well, God accepts you if you meet certain terms in your obedience. Now, he, he didn't keep saying that, uh, but he did say it, and it influenced a lot of people, and it confused people. And, uh, and, of course, there's no need to be confusing about the gospel. The gospel is good news. Jesus died for sinners, and Christ justifies the ungodly. That's Amen. the teaching of the Apostle Paul in Romans 4. Now, we don't want to remain ungodly. We want to, uh, we want to grow in our sanctification by grace alone through faith alone. Um, but that's a consequence of being saved. So there's a case where, uh, you know, biblicism creates problems. I'm going to follow the Bible or read the Bible as if no one's ever read it before. Well, you're not the first person to ever read the Bible. And when you read the Bible that way, uh, particularly when you're not well-informed, 
you have a high likelihood of ending up in one of the many great heresies. Uh, whether you're Clark Pinnock and you end up saying that God, you know, maybe God has a body. Maybe the Mormons have a point. Oh, God, yeah. Well, no, don't say that. That's the anthropomorphite heresy. That's a gross heresy. Don't do that. Well, maybe uh, Jesus only has one nature. Well, no, that's the monophysite heresy. Well, uh, maybe he has two, maybe he's really two persons. Well, no, don't say that. That's the you, historian heresy. You can, you can blame, uh, you can blame, you, you can blame Onig for that one because he's from the Armenian church. Yeah, from, yeah, I'm definitely, I was a monophysite, <laughs> definitely, but no, well, no longer. <laughs> well, see, so you see the, the benefit of, of learning the ancient Christian faith as summarized in the ecumenical creeds. Um, so uh, there, there's a, in, in a sense, uh, biblicism is driven by a kind of arrogance that, you know, I don't need anyone to help me read the Bible. Well, you do. And if you don't think you do, uh, then you really, really do. Um, and, uh, and it's also driven by a kind of rationalism, because what a biblicist ends up doing, he says, well, I'm just following the Bible. But what he almost invariably ends up doing is falling into heresy and identifying his intellect with the Word of God. And this is what happened with the Socinians in the 17th century. Right at the end of the 16th century, early 17th century, there arose a group of Italians and Polish uh, uh, Christians who said, uh, you know, listen, we, we really doubt everything that the church has concluded to this point. We're going to re-examine everything from scratch uh, according to Scripture. But they, they smuggled in this notion that their intellect is the measure of all things. So they pretended to follow the Bible, but they weren't really. They were really placing Scripture under their, their reason, human reason. And they ended up giving up the two natures of Christ. They ended up giving up the substitutionary atonement and the Trinity. So in, in effect, they gave up the Christian faith. And this is what often happens with biblicism. So it's a big problem. It's widespread. It's uh, sadly, even in the Reformed churches, I run into it sometimes. Uh, far often, uh, far too often than I would like to run into it. I run into it on the internet with evangelicals uh, almost daily. Uh, somebody writes to me or says something on Twitter or social media or something that says, well, you know, uh, I'm just reading the Bible and I don't need uh, your, uh, you know, uh, stinking creeds and confessions. Uh, well, don't they, claim, uh, don't they claim that, uh, well, the Holy Spirit's teaching me, I don't need men to teach me. Well, there's that, that, yeah. I mean, Pentecostals are always getting messages, direct messages from the, from the Spirit. Right. No, and, I, mean, uh, I would assume that's much of it is just uh, arrogance and pride to think that uh, saints in the past cannot help you understand the Word of God uh, in greater clarity. Sure. And it's not just saints, it's the church. And I think that's really important. Sure. So, you know, uh, Athanasius wrote a fair bit. And I enjoy reading Athanasius and I learned from Athanasius. But I don't confess Athanasius. I do confess the Athanasian Creed. Right? Now, he didn't write that. Uh, but it, it was purported to be a summary of his theology. I do confess the Nicene-Constantinopolitan Creed, um, and those are churchly documents, documents, uh, summaries, uh, formal ecclesiastical summaries of certain points of doctrine. And so uh, those have a kind of status that private opinions, however widely published they may be, don't have. So somebody writes a systematic theology, I read it, and I think, well, that's very interesting, but I don't confess it. And, uh, and so the past uh, should guide us, and we should learn it. And, and again, this is a problem that American evangelicals have, because they try to often read the Bible without 
you know, consulting the past. Well, you're always going to be reading the Bible in somebody's context, uh, either your context or, or, or somebody else's. Mm-hmm. And um, so uh, why not consult those who've read the scriptures before you? And, uh, and of course, I'm biased that way. I'm a historian. Uh, I think the past has a lot to say to us. And uh, I wish Americans would take that more seriously. Yeah, that's one thing I found really um, awe-inspiring about the Reformed faith is the, the connection to history, you know, that we, there, that we are connected to the past. Um, and like you said, there are so many errors that arise when we're not connected to the past, that we haven't learned our lesson, that we keep on distorting the gospel, we keep on messing up in our interpretation of the scripture, and um, there's a continuity, there's a uniformity to it. Well, that's right. We are, are um, really prone to you know re- redoing things, and so uh, you see that American, you see that in American evangelicalism frequently, where people are, you know, going through the same sort of heresies and errors and problems that have already been redone, and it's it's sad to see that. And, and if we learned the past, uh, we could potentially avoid some of those things. And this isn't just theory. You know, uh, when a minister starts teaching ancient heresies, that has a damaging effect on the lives and the faith and the piety and the the Christian life of Christians. And so uh, we ought to be conscious of that, and and we ought to um, care for the souls of God's sheep, right? Christ's sheep, his little ones for whom he laid down his life. So it's an act of love and pastoral care to see that Christians are taught uh, the Christian faith and not something else, you know, not some ver- not Unitarianism um, or something that uh, marginalizes the Word of God in favor of you know some direct revelation or, or whatever it is that people are doing. Uh, I think about uh, open theism. You know, that was a that was a serious problem again, driven by biblicism. Had, had people uh, paid attention to traditional Christian teaching, and particularly to the ecumenical creeds, and uh, uh, we could have avoided that. I wrote an article some years ago to the emergent uh, church movement saying, listen, I'm not asking you people to sign the Westminster Confession. I'd be great if you would. Uh, I'm just asking you to hold to the Athanasian Creed. And the Athanasian Creed says anyone who will be saved must hold the Catholic, meaning ecumenical, not meaning Roman, uh, faith, uh, and uh, it it's summarizes the basic teaching uh, of the faith on the two natures of Christ and the Trinity. And I, that seems fair to me, that, that I you, you should at least hold the Athanasian Creed, the Nicene Creed, the, the Apostles' Creed, and the definition of Chalcedon. That, that's not asking right. that much. And we're also seeing this again with uh, tr- Trinitarian subordinationism, right? Um, you know, there's, there's, it seems like they're denying the Nicene Creed. Well, that's right. That's exactly right. So this whole business of the uh, uh, economic um, subordination of the sun, and it's gotten very confusing because it looks uh, to all the world as if some of these leading uh, evangelical theologians are saying that God the Son is inherently uh, inferior to the Father in his being and inherently subordinate uh, to the Father in his being. And then they say, well, we're not saying that and then as you read them not saying it, it sounds and looks like, no, that's really what you're saying. So they don't even seem to always understand the consequences of, of what they're saying. Right. You know, they're, they're trying, in this case, to figure out a, a ground within God for male and female relations. 
And as a consequence, they put the doctrine of the Trinity in jeopardy, and they put the doctrine of Christ in jeopardy, and it's simply not necessary. Uh, right. When Scripture talks about the subordination of the Son, it always talks about it relative to the incarnation, yep. not relative to the pre-incarnate Son. Mm. And, um, and so it seems to me there's a lack of engagement in uh, certain circles uh, with the ecumenical faith uh, as it you know, comes to summary in the, for example, the Nicene Creed. And I think that, you know, if the people who were doing uh, this theologizing were in settings where every Sunday they recited the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, and it really got in their bones, this one I don't think they'd be quite so quick to talk about the, or to imply the economic and ontological subordination, that is the, the, the subordination in his being of the Son. This is a thing that we sorted out at the Nicene Creed. And that's the value of saying phrases like God of God, you know, very God of very God, light of light, uh, begotten, not made, and, and so forth. Um, so we don't fall into quasi-heretical uh, positions or even heretical positions uh, uh, on the doctrine of God the do or the doctrine of Christ. Again, uh, we have a heretical view of the doctrine of God. We, we place ourselves in great jeopardy. We have a heretical view of the doctrine of Christ. We place salvation in jeopardy. Mm -hmm. And these are this is serious business. These are not games. Since we're talking about biblicism right now, you know, there's many issues right now um, that have arisen in regard to the distortion of the gospel. And... Um, you know, can you please comment on, on the particular current issues, uh, particularly the doctrine of final salvation as espoused by John Piper, Thomas Schreiner, and others? You know, I hate to bring up John Piper because I know this is such a, a big issue and we've dealt with it many times, talking to people, especially friends on Facebook who um, find John Piper very endearing. You know, I understand that he's touched a lot of people and rightly so in some ways, but only again, I found that, you know, reading his, his, uh, works on the doctrine of justification are just very disconcerting. Yeah. I, I lost you there for a second. Uh, but if I understand the question, uh, you're asking about this controversy over the um, doctrine of final salvation you know we're talking yeah. about john piper's views of justification you know uh, so but, mm -hmm. yeah in uh, in the last few years um you know again we've had this this controversy um you know and i honestly i had not really been paying a lot of attention to uh to john i, I you know i've appreciated him i uh, appreciated his defense of, of imputation his recovery of imputation and uh, his engagement with the new perspective on Paul, and uh, so as far as I knew, I thought it, that you know that he had. Uh, I knew he had a background in Daniel Fuller, who um, teaches a, a kind of nomism, and I thought, well, okay, he's sort of uh, moved on from from that, and he's not teaching that anymore. Uh, but I was wrong. Uh, some years ago, I was in a, a meeting with him and some others uh, when he was in San Diego, and I asked him. I said, John, how was your Theology changed, and he said, "Well, it hasn't." And at the time, I thought, "Well, that doesn't seem entirely accurate." Um, but I, I think uh, he was right; I was wrong. Uh, that, uh, in fact, his theology hadn't really uh, changed in important ways. I think what he did was uh, add a doctrine of imputation to uh, this to the first stage. His uh, his uh, so he he thinks of two stages of salvation. 
And the initial stage is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And so this is what people hear. They say, well, I've heard him say justification by, you know, sola gratia, sola fide, on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ received through faith alone. What are you talking about? And I say, you know, that's true. He, he has said that, and we're grateful for that. The problem is that he's also said that that's the first stage. And, uh, of course, uh, we don't know anything about two stages of salvation. And, and then he proposes the second stage of final salvation. So you're not finally saved yet. And then that should give people pause. Right. Right. You're provisionally justified now, but you're not finally justified. You're not finally saved. You're not finally delivered. And of course, salvation is broader than justification. It includes justification, but it, it, it includes our, our justification, our sanctification, and our glorification. And uh, historically, what the Reformed have said is that you are saved, not just justified, saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We attain heaven through faith alone. Faith alone is the sole instrument of justification and salvation. Uh, John has, uh, by adding, by, by talking about uh, uh, final salvation and having two stages, uh, he's turned our good works into something other than what they are. Um, so what I like to say is, you know, good works are, but we're not saved by them and we're not saved through them. So they're, uh, so they're a necessary consequence. They're a necessary consequence. And, and so they are. Good works are. And uh, what I say to John and to everybody who will listen is, we need to distinguish between is, with, and through. So if uh, somebody goes, and maybe you guys can put this up uh, on, your, on your page somewhere, uh, if you go to the resource page on the, on the Heidelblog, heidelblog.net slash resources, one of the resource pages is resources on the final on the controversy over final salvation through works. And uh, you, there's many, many pages here, documents here, um, and uh, pictures and things. It's 63 different uh, articles and pieces of evidence um, exploring various aspects of this question. And, and what I say is that we, one of the things I say is we need to distinguish between is, with, and through. Uh, it is the case that there'll be good works, uh, but we're not saved through them, uh, but they are with our justification, right? They're with, but, uh, but but we're not saved through them, and we're not saved by them, and we're not saved on the basis of them. Um, so if, you, if people will just read these articles, you'll see that the, the Reformed teaching, the biblical teaching, I think, is, uh, is, is very clear. And, and what John has said is, no, he's not satisfied with good works as fruit and evidence of our justification, Right, um, he wants our our good works to do more than that um, uh, before the Lord. He wants our good works to be uh, either part of our basis or part of the uh, the instrument through which we are finally saved. You know, it's, and, and, as, uh, and John says this because he he's not satisfied with fruit and evidence because that's not going to get. He he's afraid that that's not going to get right. the outcome that he wants. Yeah. That is, he wants people to be sanctified now, and if he says that good works are fruit and evidence, well, that's not sufficient motivation to produce good works. And of course, this is what the moralists always do. Uh, they're afraid uh, to let the gospel do its work and uh, to let salvation be really completely free. And so they, they ultimately make it conditional in a way that uh, undermines uh, salvation by grace alone. So, And just in case somebody says, well, what, what are you talking about? Well, uh, 
desiring uh, God Ministries, uh, you know, a year or two ago on Twitter, published uh, a tweet that says, uh, you are not saved through good works, or you're sorry, you are not saved through faith alone, uh, be killing sin. Yep. And, and, right. and so uh, you, you can't be any clearer than that. And John's been very clear about that. Uh, he's explicit that we are not finally saved uh, through uh, faith alone, by grace alone. We are finally saved by grace, through faith, and works. And I say that's a contradiction of the Reformation. It's a contradiction, more importantly, of the gospel as explained uh, by our Lord Jesus and by the apostles. You know, Dr. Clark, a lot of us have been accused um, on this issue by saying, you don't understand what John Piper is saying. We're, he is just saying that uh, good works necessarily follow justification. So, you know, they, they say you guys are just exaggerating the issue. And it's, it's a straw man argument. Yeah, I, again, this is what people, uh, we had the same uh, problem with the shepherd, you know, well, you don't, you just don't understand him. And uh, he, he's just saying, well, no, we do understand him. We actually sat down and read him and done him the credit of paying attention to what he said uh, in the context in which he said it and what the words mean when you read them in their original context. And I've gone back and forth with people who just knew that he couldn't be saying that. Well, couldn't is not really a very helpful word in this context. Um, couldn't is an a priori. It's a supposition. It's not a fact, mm -hmm. right? Well, and, and, and the, so the question is, what has he actually said? Right. And if you read what he has actually said, and, and, and so if you go back to you know, future grace, he's saying the same thing now that he yep. said in future grace, and the only thing that's changed is that he's added the doctrine of imputation and sola fide to the first stage of salvation. But remember, for Piper, there are two stages. And if the second stage is different than the first stage, then the first stage means you're only out on probation, right? So you've been released, you've paid a bond, you're out on probation, you're out on bail, however you want to put it, but you haven't been finally acquitted yet. There is a final judgment yet to come, and it's and your works are going to be instrumental in that. Man, not it, as evidence, not as fruit, right. not as vindication, right? And that's, you know, we distinguish between, uh, we say that there is justification and then a final vindication, but the vindication uh, is uh, about fruit and evidence. That's all, that's all it is. And that's, Piper's not satisfied with that. It just seems more, uh, it seems more Roman than anything else. I mean, it does seem close to that, at least. Well, this is the thing, you know, um, about biblicism. Uh, if, if, if we're not doing our theology in conversation with the church and, and, uh, in, and uh, within a, a confessional tradition, so whether, uh, say, a Reformed confessional tradition or a Lutheran confessional tradition, what have you, uh, then we run into the possibility of making these kinds of mistakes because we don't have the same kinds of guardrails that confessional people have. And of course, I would want people to be uh, you know, driving on the Reformed Highway and, and letting the Heidelberg, the Belgic, and the Canons, and the Westminster Standards function as their guardrail. And if you let the Reformed Confessions function as your guardrail, and again, if you go to the Heidelblog, sorry for the plug, but heidelblog.net, <laughs> right? And then slash resources, and then look at the page through the resources, you'll find this resource page, and I've got this all documented here, 
that we very clearly confess that we are saved, right? It's not as if, by the way, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 is all that complicated. For it is by grace you have been saved. And this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Right? Yeah, and, uh, and, and it doesn't say justified. It says saved. And if you look at what the Bible says about salvation, not just justification, but justification, sanctification, glorification, it's always by grace alone through faith alone. Yeah, amen. And uh, and so it's important. And, and so the good news coming out of this controversy is that it really drove me back to the scriptures. I had to re-examine the scriptures to make sure that yeah, this is in fact what it says. And uh, and go back and look at the Reformed confessions. What do they say about salvation? And uh, and, and lo and behold, uh, they're very clear about this. Right, good works are necessary, but they are necessary as a consequence of of our free salvation by grace alone through faith alone. Right, amen. I think a lot, a lot of the masses that are uh, that accept uh, the doctrines of uh, final salvation um, accept it um, not on, well, I guess partly on ignorance, but uh, mostly because when they hear the terms, oh, you have to, you have to have good works, you have to show good works, they'll say immediately, yes, that's true. Of course, we have to show good works. Therefore, I, I agree with John Piper and whoever else preaches that sort of doctrine. So. And it it falls back to what we were talking about this whole time about having the creeds, having the confessions to fall back to and to rely on um, to understand uh, the whole of Scripture and uh, so you don't fall into such such error. Well, that's right. And and again, having some notion of history, uh, were people more aware, for example, of what Richard Baxter taught in the 17th century about justification and salvation, uh, they would be... uh, aware that uh, that uh, a number of uh, contemporary evangelical uh, teachers have embraced similar language uh, and so you know, and uh, Baxter was no friend of the Reformation he wasn't satisfied with the Reformation I know we think of Baxter as a hero of sanctity and a faithful catechist and so forth and and a pastor visiting his people and all that uh, but he was very plain in his uh, theses on justification, his aphorisms on justification, that he wasn't satisfied with the Reformation. He wanted to change the Reformation. And so if, if we had a consciousness that, uh, you know, uh, of the kinds of things, for example, that Baxter said, we would recognize it when contemporary evangelicals sort of resuscitate it and, and begin teaching it. Um, and uh, he taught. He, Baxter, for example, distinguished between initial and final justification. Uh, the, the very uh, notion of a, of a distinction, this, this kind of distinction, really comes from Roman critics of the Reformation, right? The, the very category, final justification, that's not a Protestant category. It's not a Reformed category. That's a Roman category. So, uh, you know, here we've embraced these uh, alien categories and used them to explain the faith in ways that are really fundamentally damaging of the gospel. And again, as valuable as creeds, confessions, and the past are altogether, and they are very valuable, I'm convinced that the Word of God read on its own terms, when we pay attention to what Scripture actually says, is very clear about the nature of salvation. And, you know, the paradigmatic salvation event in Scripture uh, up until the death of Jesus is uh, the the, the, uh, delivery of deliverance of the Egypt, the Israelites through the Red Sea from the Egyptians. And how did the Israelites cooperate in their salvation? Well, they didn't. It, you know, 
the whole point of the narrative in Exodus is to show that this is a stubborn, rebellious, sinful, unable people. And God graciously, sovereignly saved them uh, from death and destruction, symbolized by the, the uh, Egyptians and by Pharaoh and so forth, uh, by parting the, the Red Sea and drowning Pharaoh and his host and delivering the Israelites uh, through the Red Sea on dry ground, as the psalmist says. So uh, that, that's the paradigm. Right? And there's no cooperation. Uh, God sovereignly does it. And whenever it's described in Scripture, it's always God sovereignly doing it. And again, Jesus sovereignly, uh, graciously, unconditionally saved us uh, at the cross. And that salvation is graciously, sovereignly, unconditionally applied to us by the Holy Spirit. So however we look at it, you know, whether we look at it in the New Testament or the Old Testament, or the Gospels or the Epistles, it's always by grace alone through faith alone. So I don't want the listener to come away thinking, well, this is really a doctrine that's grounded in, in the past, you know, in uh, confessions and uh, you know, historical writers. No, it's grounded in the Word of God, and uh, that, that's the reason why we say these things. So, Dr. Clark, would you consider this doctrine a heresy, heterodoxy, or what would you categorize it as? Well, it's certainly heterodox. I mean, Again, it, whether it's heresy depends on how we're using the word heresy. Uh, there's a narrow definition of heresy, which says that, uh, you know, uh, if you're not defying the ecumenical creeds, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the Apostles' Creed, the definition of Chalcedon and so forth, well, then it's not heresy. Uh, but uh, so in the very narrow sense, perhaps not. But I, I hasten to remind the listener that uh, the Synod of Dort described Arminius' teaching as heresy. And did so repeatedly because at the Fourth Ecumenical Synod at, at Ephesus in 431, uh, the Synod of Ephesus condemned a famous uh, Pelagian teacher. They, they didn't, uh, for whatever reason, condemn Pelagius, but they condemned his representative, Coelestius or Celestius, uh, by name and, and condemned his teaching. And the churches all following that, and, and even before that, in some North African synods and other places, condemned uh, Pelagius and Pelagianism as heresy. So to the degree that this participates in a kind of Pelagianism, we might say, in that sense, it's heresy. Uh, maybe if we're using the word heresy in a broad sense, it's heresy. But certainly we could agree, I think, from a, we ought to agree from a Reformed, biblical, confessional point of view, that to say that there are two stages of salvation, initially by grace alone through faith alone, on the basis of the imputed righteousness of Christ, and finally, uh, by grace, through faith, and works, right? that and really kills everything, yeah. uh, that that's, at least we can agree that's heterodox and damaging to the gospel and a really serious and really, frankly, quite unnecessary mistake. Uh, Dr. Clark, do you think that heterodoxy would produce certain things like pietism as opposed to uh, true piety? Well, does it produce pietism? It might be born of pietism. And I suppose it could produce pietism, if by that we mean, you know, a kind of undue introspection. You know, do I have enough works? Do I have enough fruit? Uh, do, you know, do I have the right quality of religious experience? A certain kind of navel-gazing, perhaps? I, I don't... Um, and if, uh, if there's a legal aspect to pietism, I suppose we, we could say it, it could produce that. But I think in some ways it's probably born of it as much as producing it. And it certainly does... I think unintentionally perhaps put people back under the law and as we would say in our tradition uh, uh, under the covenant of works so we we like to talk about the 
the covenant of works before the fall and the covenant of grace. And the covenant of works is law. It says do this and live. And the covenant of grace says uh, is gospel. It says uh, Christ shall do looking forward or has done looking back. And, um, you know, when you're asking yourself, well, have I done enough to be saved? Well, that's not the language of the covenant of grace. That's the language of the covenant of works. Mm. And, uh, and so uh, uh, I think it has that very unhappy effect. And historically, uh, you know, there have been times when pietism has led to that as well. So it, um, it seems to me, though, when you're talking about these issues, like you said, either you're under a covenant of works or a covenant of grace, that this is really is um, born out of an improper distinction between law and gospel. Well, that's right. And I think th this is one of these vital Reformation distinctions that we've lost that we need to recover. Uh, it was hugely important for me to relearn and, and to learn to articulate the distinction between law and gospel. And, and, and again, Mike, uh, you know, Mike's not responsible for anything I'm saying here, but I did learn from Mike Horton the value and importance of, of for example, distinguishing law and gospel in one's preaching. And, uh, and I'd say that revolutionized my preaching to just become conscious that there is this distinction and we want to look for it in Scripture. It doesn't necessarily settle how we're going to answer or, or look at any particular passage, but it's an analytical question. How do these two kinds of words, how do these two principles function in the Scriptures, and, and are they present or how are they present in this passage that I'm studying? And I learned that question from Theodore Beza. And uh, William Perkins, who said, if you don't know how to distinguish law and gospel, you can't preach. And Perkins was exactly right about that. He says that in The Art of Prophesying. And uh, Theodore Beza says the single greatest need of the hour, writing this, um, I think, in the late 16th century, is to learn to distinguish law and gospel. And, of course, Martin Luther said that a, a layman who can distinguish law and gospel is a, is a theologian, as opposed to the theologian who can't distinguish law and gospel. Uh, he's worthless. So, uh, you know, anyone who's a Christian, Luther said, should be able to distinguish law and gospel. If you can't distinguish law and gospel, then you're no different from, uh, you know, a non-Christian Jew or a Muslim or a pagan. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of truth in that, because if you're not able to distinguish law and gospel or unwilling to distinguish law and gospel, then you really uh, have, uh, again, damaged the faith and damaged uh, the understanding of the faith that's being communi communicated to God's people. And, um, and you'll do as I did for uh, too many years, put people back under the law uh, uh, blindly, foolishly, when in fact, it's when you put people under the gospel and they realize that they're under good news and under grace, that that's what actually empowers them to live godly lives. And putting them under the law doesn't really lead to the kind of sanctification you say that you want. So the gospel is the engine to sanctification. I, I really believe that, and I think our best teachers are pretty clear about that, and I think the Word of God is clear about that. The Apostle Paul always preaches the gospel first, and then he says, here's how we live in light of this, in union with Christ, right? Having been freely saved, now let us give ourselves to loving our neighbors and uh, give ourselves to loving God with all of our faculties and dying to sin, living to Christ in light of the gospel, in union with Christ. And I think that's vital. One of the great works on this is uh, the gospel mystery of sanctification. All right, that sanctification is a fruit of the gospel, not a fruit of the law. The, the law is necessary as the norm for the Christian life. It's necessary to teach us the greatness of our sin and misery. It's necessary in some sense as the norm for civil life, the, particularly the second table of the, of the moral law. 
but the law doesn't give us power to obey. Only Christ gives us power, and he does it through the gospel. And again, when people hear that, they say, well, that's radical. Well, it's sad that that's radical because that's really very basic Protestant theology. It's very basic New Testament theology. Mm -hmm. So before we tie things up here, you know, we often talk about pietism and piety. We were talking about that a couple of minutes ago. So, you know, people say, well, you reform guys downplay piety. So can you please uh, distinguish or explain to the listening in the audience the difference between true piety and pietism? Again, pietism is this quest for the unmediated experience of the risen Christ. Um, you know, some people say we really worshiped it. What they mean is we, I'm increasingly convinced we got a shot of dopamine or, or whatever brain chemicals are, are, you know, going on there. And, uh, you know, or we had this, uh, you know, unmediated experience of the risen Christ. We had a vision or, or whatever it is, um, you know, and in pietism, you know, there's this desire to sort of go beyond the ordinary. Um, it's a quest for the mountaintop experience. And, uh, and so I want to say, no, true piety is a heartfelt devotion to God, born of grace, wrought in the believer by the Holy Spirit, whereby he desires more and more to die to sin and die to self and live to Christ by grace, through faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, in union with Christ. And he does so in community, in the church, not necessarily, you know, first of all, in small groups. The pietists were great about small groups, and they, they created what they uh, called the little church within the church. And we see this, of course, you know, this really describes modern evangelicalism. It's all about finding the little church within the church. You ask people, well, how was church? Oh, we had a great small group meeting. No, I mean, how was the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments? Well, I, I don't know. Um, you know that right how are, I was how, a, right how are your disciplines going right i mean exactly how yeah. was your quiet time you know when i was a young evangelical that was the first question not are you attending to the preaching of the gospel and the use of the sacraments and and uh, public worship and so forth but how's your quiet time how's your your and again i whenever i criticize the the sort of sacrament of the quiet time people say well you're against bible reading no i'm very much in favor of bible reading but i'm i'm against uh, inventing new sacraments. The altar call is a, a new false sacrament. Right. And the quiet time is not a sacrament. Uh, it's a useful exercise. Um, and it's good. And I want people to read their Bible. Uh, but I, I want their piety to flow out of their public worship. And where the law is preached, and the gospel is preached, and, when, and uh, you know, I'm not necessarily against small groups, but I don't want them to replace public worship. I, I want to begin with the objective, with the things that Christ has instituted. He instituted the visible church. He instituted the preaching of the gospel, the preaching of the law, and, uh, and the, the sacraments of, of the Lord's Supper and baptism and, uh, and prayer. These are the things he wants us to use and uh, by which we are to grow. And so we, I want to, all I'm asking is for people to put first things first. But yes, read your Bible at home, pray at home, uh, if you're not praying at home and reading your Bible, you, you are depriving yourself of, of marvelous privileges. And, and again, in the Heidelberg Catechism, we say that, that the prayer is the, the first fruit of a thankful heart. And that we even say that God will only give his blessings and benefits to those people who ask for them. So prayer is essential. It's, it's a way that he operates 
within us. And, and we, we must pray. And people who are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, want to pray. Uh, but we also want to gather with God's people. Amen. And, uh, and that's really all, all I'm saying. Amen. Uh, can you please give us the gospel before we go? Well, yeah, the gospel is good news. It means that God the Son became incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. In other words, that Jesus is God the Son incarnate, true man, true God, and that he obeyed in the place of, of all of his people. He kept the law for them, uh, and all that he did uh, for them is credited to them. He suffered on our behalf, so he paid the penalty for uh, our sin, and uh, by, by virtue of, of his death, uh, our sins were wiped away. Uh, by virtue of his resurrection, we were justified. He's ascended. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling his church, ruling the nations by his providence, ruling his church by his grace, saving his elect by his powerful Holy Spirit, calling all of his elect to new life and true faith. And we stand uh, righteous before God, righteous before judgment, only on the basis of the wonderful, complete uh, righteousness of Jesus. So we're not only innocent on that basis, but we are actually positively righteous as if we ourselves had done all that Jesus did. And we receive all that he did through faith alone. And that God uh, grants all these things to us, all these benefits, by his grace, by his favor alone. Uh, so th that's the good news, that he, he accomplished our salvation, he's applied our salvation, and uh, he's saving all of his people, and he's going to return bodily, visibly, noisily, and to bring all of human history to a close and to inaugurate the new heavens and the new earth. And everyone who believes Jesus is a part of that and a part of his, his kingdom. Amen. To the glory of God alone. Amen. Hey, Dr. Clark, we want to thank you so much for coming on our podcast. It's such a pleasure and what a great conversation. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Thank you for having me. Uh, we want to thank the audience, too, for listening. And, you know, come back next time as we take you back to the Reformation. See ya.